I'll use the example of security businesses because it just happens to be top of mind. In security, where you go and install like a home security system for a family inside somebody's home, they have two forms of revenue, right? You've got the installation revenue, and then they've got the recurring revenue where you monitor the system and call the cops if there's a break-in. When an acquirer looks at that business, they'll pay about 75 cents for every dollar of installation revenue and $3 for every dollar of recurring revenue. Your recurring revenue is worth like four times more than your installation revenue. If you can get this right, you can literally double, triple, quadruple the value of your company. Welcome to the Action Academy Podcast. Stand back while I celebrate freedom. The show where we help you achieve financial independence with the mindsets, methods, and actionable steps from guests who've already earned their freedom. The flags of freedom fly. Choose to do what you want. What you want. With who you want. With who you want. When you want. When you want. With another episode today. Now, here's your host, Brian Lubin. What is up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back to another episode of the Action Academy podcast. It's your boy, Brian Lubin. Let's get you rich. Richer than you were yesterday and a little bit less rich than you will be tomorrow. You can make some serious dough in real estate investing, ladies and gentlemen, but the real dough is from owning some big old businesses. And not only owning big old businesses, but selling big old businesses for some eight-figure, nine-figure 10-figure paychecks. Woo, man, that just that gets me fired up even talking about it on this microphone. Woo. So there's one major recurring problem that happens as we build or attempt to build big old businesses. And if you're new to the entrepreneurship game, you will have heard of this. And if you have a business, you will definitely be aware of this. But we do a really crappy job as entrepreneurs of A, sticking to something that's not new, shiny, and exciting, aka building boring systems and processes that are repeatable and scalable. We do a terrible job of that. And we also do a terrible job of delegating out our worlds to where we have businesses. Some of you guys listening may have some big old businesses, but if you just decided to fly to Puerto Rico, eh, would your business keep going without you? That is the topic of today's show, my friends. Not only do we want you to build the biggest business possible for the biggest paycheck possible, but we also want you to build something where you do not have to be involved in the day-to-day operations. It needs to have people and processes in place to where you are not the life or death of your business. You need to be able to get out of your own way so your business can grow and thrive without you to what it deserves to become. So once again, all of my intermediate entrepreneurs are like, hell yes, Brian, charge forward, tell me more. But some some of you may be listening to this intro right now and you may say, not for me, I'm looking for my first rental property. Not for me, I have no idea what I'm doing. I would challenge that belief and I would say this is definitely the episode for you guys. Once again, listen to this stuff, pay attention, take notes, because what this will do is shave decades off of bad practices for you because now you can go start a business and begin with the end in mind. Now, how do you find this information? You can start a business and kick and scream and complain and whine for years and years, or you can listen to today's podcast with the literal author of the book, Built to Sell, John Warlow. John is a serial entrepreneur who has built 
scaled and exited multiple eight-figure businesses. So he's gotten some big old paychecks, baby. He walks the walk. He talks the talk. And today, ladies and gentlemen, he is going to help you in every single stage of your business. A lot of you will listen to today's episode and immediately go back to your operations team and change everything that you're doing. And you're going to say, okay, this is what we need to do. Heard this podcast. We got to implement this today. Holy crap. And some of you will listen to this and you'll say, holy crap, Brian's community sounds awesome. I need to join the Action Academy community so I can go from a W-2 employee to an investor to an entrepreneur and implement step-by-step everything that we're saying in this episode. So if you want to dance with us over on the wild side, go in the show description, theactionacademy.co. That is theactionacademy.co. All right, that's enough. Let's get to it. John freaking Warlow. Let's rock. John Warlow. What is going on, my friend? How are you? Not much. I'm good, Brian. How are you? Doing well, man. We're doing well. We got over in Toronto, Canada. So we just keep going international on this show inadvertently, man. It just won't <laughs> stop going international. So we're bringing it from all corners of the globe. You have authored a couple of books. I've read Built to Sell cover to cover. I have not read Automatic Customer, Art of Selling Your Business. But I would invite you to go ahead. And I know normally this is saved for the ending of the episode. But ladies and gentlemen, John doesn't need to earn any of your value. He's already earned it. Okay. So you're going to go buy every single one of his books, and then you're going to buy all of his books and send them to your mom, your f- friends, your family, everyone. So John, walk <laughs> us through the trilogy here, because this is the Bible for people that are looking to get into business or they have a business already and they're operating, they're profitable, but they don't know how the heck to value this thing or exit it. So walk us through your trilogy. Yeah. Built to Sell really is about how do you take an owner-operated business where the owner may have a great business, maybe profitable, but it's not really something that he or she could leave for an extended period of time and make it something that can thrive without the owner. The idea being that many business owners don't actually want to sell, but they know they want to they, they want to sell one day and they want to know that they could sell. And so it's about how do you create a business that's not dependent on you? Automatic Customer was actually born out of some research we did at Value Builder where we looked at the drivers of a company's value. In Built to Sell, I didn't really spend enough time talking about recurring revenue. It turns out that recurring revenue is one of the secret sauce. It is probably the fastest way you can accelerate the value of a company is to create recurring revenue. And so I wanted to do a whole book on how do you create recurring revenue, in particular in industries that aren't really known for recurring revenue. How does a plumber, how does a car dealership, how does a dental practice create recurring revenue? That's the idea behind the automatic customer. And then the art of selling your business is really how do you harvest? So you've created all this value, but until you actually have a liquidity event, it's all just theoretical value. Right? Mm-hmm. How do you actually take the value you've created in your company and make it into liquid wealth? And that that's really a playbook designed to take fairly complicated road to selling a company effectively. Yeah. And as much as I'd love to do the logical thing, we're entrepreneurs and we're not logical at times. So we're going to jump right into the recurring revenue first. And then we'll go back to built to sell because man, this is on top of my brain right now with how I'm doing my business. I started it off as a, like a coaching company. And then I heard this quote from this gentleman named Alex Hermosi, which you may be familiar with, where he's, he yeah. talks about, he said he sold a company called Jim Launch for a hundred million dollars, some odd. I think it was 40 million for that exit. And he was talking about how the recurring revenue, the subscription revenue is like the major thing for all the PE firms that were looking and valuing his company were like subscription revenue, recurring revenue is everything. 
So can you talk to us? Let's go ahead and start that conversation there about people that have a service that is one off, hit, quit, profit, move on to the next month versus recurring model. Talk about the importance of that. Yeah, lots of questions embedded there. So look, I think it's, again, very important to the value of your company. So let me just give you an example of that. And this propagates through virtually every industry. I'll use, I'll use the example of security businesses because it just happens to be top of mind. In security, where you go and install like a home security system for a family inside somebody's home, you wire up the windows and so forth. They have two forms of revenue, right? You've got the installation revenue where you install the system. And then they've got the recurring revenue where you monitor the system and call the cops if there's a break-in. When an acquirer looks at that business, they'll pay about 75 cents for every dollar of installation revenue and $3 for every dollar of recurring revenue. Wow. Said another way, on a dollar for dollar basis, your recurring revenue is worth like four times more than your installation revenue. So the stakes are really high. If you can get this right, you can literally double, triple, quadruple the value of your company if you can create recurring revenue and make this transition from transactional revenue to recurring. The secret and the biggest mistake I think that I see people making is to try to boil the ocean. They try to look at their business and they say, like, how could I create recurring revenue for all of my revenue, for all of my customers? And they create some very diluted subscription offering. Whereas I think the actual opposite or the first step, if you will, is really niching down to try to find a sub-segment in your customer base that have a homogeneous need. It's in essence, the same frustration, the same need that everybody has, and then create a recurring revenue model. I'll give you an example. I wrote about it in the Automatic Customer. People buy flowers for lots of different reasons. We just are recording mm-hmm. this on the day after Valentine's Day, right? Where a lot of flowers get bought on Valentine's Day. Between Mother's Day and Valentine's Day, I think it's somewhere between a third and a half of all of the revenue of a typical flower store is done on those two days. And so... It's a very, it's a wonky business. You got to have a flower store. You got to deal with customers coming in for graduations and for condolences. And of course, Mother's Day and Valentine's Day. So you have to have pay rent 12 months of the year. Hmm. So these two guys, these two entrepreneurs came along, Sonia Panda and Brian Burkhardt and said, we want to be in the business of selling flowers, but we're going to do it differently. We're going to actually sell flowers on subscription. And so instead of trying to find a subscription for anyone who bought a flower for, again, grade eight graduation, <laughs> condolences, instead yeah. of doing that, what they did is they said, who has a need for flowers on a recurring basis? And what they discovered was that there is a very small slice of the flower buying universe that buys flowers regularly. And that is five-star hotels. Because when you hmm. go with the Ritz-Carlton at Bis- Key Biscayne, Florida, you walk into the Ritz-Carlton, you see a fresh-cut bouquet of flowers. Why do they do that? They want to justify the $700 a night you're paying to stay there, right? So the fresh-cut flowers gives that sort of boutique image. So it's worth it to them to spend 40 bucks a week to get a fresh-cut flower, a fresh-cut bouquet delivered. And so Brian Burkhardt and Sonia Panis said, no, we're not going to just do flowers on subscription. We're going to go to hotels, who have a recurring need, fresh bouquet of flowers on their reception table every week, and we're going to sell them a subscription. And so the same idea can be effectively applied to virtually any industry. The first thing I think you want to do is niche down, find your equivalent of hotels, five-star hotels. It's, it's not usually everybody who buys from you today. 
It's usually a, a sub-segment of a sub-segment of people that need your ongoing service. If you take an HVAC company, for example, they do heating and air conditioning. Well, installing a huge furnace in an industrial building is a one-off project. Hopefully that furnace lasts 25 years, right? That's a business that you can't create recurring revenue around. Whereas if you took homeowners in a subdivision, all of which have 2,500 to 3,000 square foot homes who need their furnace filters changed six times a year or twice a year, whatever the number is, there you can create a recurring revenue model, right? Because they all have the same need. They have to swap out the old filter, furnace filters and put in the new ones. Maybe they have to do an air quality check, et cetera. That's a recurring revenue model. But it first starts with niching down to one segment who has a recurring need. Got it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that was the best, most succinct way of breaking down like the valuation where you said, okay, if you make a transaction, like you'll get bought out for 75 cents in the dollar. But if you have a recurring model and you have a recurring transaction, that's $3 for every dollar. Yeah, Ladies Brian, I should, I, I should point out, and it would be un, it'd be bad not to point this out, and that is that those specific multiples pertain to home security. Sure. The trend, however, of recurring one-off revenue being worth dramatically less to an acquired than recurring revenue remains the same across virtually every industry. Exactly. The multiple may vary based on the industry, but the trend that recurring revenue is more valuable than one-off is remains the same in virtually any industry. Yeah, and a quote that I like that I heard from one of my mentors was to sell sticky air. They're like, all right, figure out how to sell sticky air. Because if your Netflix goes out, if your power goes out, that's something that you're going to go out of your way to pull out your credit card and say, hey, I need to get this replaced ASAP. I need this back in my life now. Otherwise, the lights aren't going to stay on. We need to keep going. So how can you find something that's an essential part of your business and be able to implement that as that recurring model? And I like that you niched it down to the customer base that's really specifically in need of that thing. We just talked to a gentleman that was a big CEO coach. He had a couple hundred million dollar companies. And he was talking about how one of the detractors of um, multiple evaluation at exit was too much consolidation of customer base and distributor base. So he said that that was a negative problem. So how do you go about doing this in this model to be able to have a consolidated niche of recurring revenue, but also avoid that problem? Hope that made sense. Yeah, it's a great precursor to, I think, or solve for that problem. Here's what a lot of small businesses do. Get into business with a certain vision. They sell to a customer and that customer asks them to offer more and more services, wider and wider suite of services, right? Because they deliver for them and they're like, oh, you've been offering us this product. Have you ever considered offering us X product? And pretty soon the small business goes from having a few products or services to having dozens of products and services. And that's the recipe of an unsellable, unscalable company. What you're right in your colleague, your coach friend, your business will be discounted in the eyes of acquirers if you have too much customer concentration. Usually the benchmark is 1.5, 15%. So if any one customer makes up more than 15% of your revenue, that's going to raise a red flag for a potential acquirer. So what you really want to do is sell a few things to lots of people. And most companies do the opposite. They sell wow. lots of things to a few people. And so what you want to do is sell a few things to lots of people. And so in part, when you think about that recurring revenue model, you're going to niche down to a point where you identify a group of 
potential customers that have a homogeneous need, the next layer of, of scrutinization you want to do or evaluation of that model is to say, is that market large enough for me to go after? It's called a TAM in the TAM, eyes of acquirers. They call it TAM, total addressable market. But basically, is it large enough? So in the case of Sonu Panda and Brian Burkhart, they said, ah, you know what? Hotels, five-star hotels are are the folks who have the recurring need. Then they did a market study and said there are whatever, 3,000, five, four and five-star hotels. So that's a market large enough to create a significant enough business. So I think what you want to do is first niche down, find the homogeneous niche and know that it's, pr it's probably not going to be enough just to focus on the subset of your customers that have that homogeneous niche. That could be a place to start, but you're likely ha going to have to go far beyond that to grow the business to a point where it's going to be attractive to acquire. Again, a few things to lots of customers and then make sure that the TAM or total address market is large enough that you can, if you penetrate three, five, 10% of it, it's a sizable enough business. I want to hit about TAM really quickly because you made some really excellent points on this, and this may be a really smooth transition into the built to sell kind of methodologies and frameworks that we can discuss on for a new entrepreneur or somebody that's running their business right now. In the book, you talk about these, this exact same principle without the recurring model. You just talk about how somebody is being okay at a lot of things and they don't have specialists. And then you're like, scram with all these people, take all these generalists, remove them, hire one rock star specialist and focus on this one thing. So if somebody is starting a business right now, or they have a business that's relatively new, when it comes to TAM, do you want to begin with a large TAM and niche down? Or is it more advantageous to begin with a smaller, more niche TAM and scale up? Yeah, I'd much prefer to start small and grow and find us a very small, homogeneous niche that you can dominate, that you can really control, and then build like Lego blocks on top of that over and over again. I think the opposite is true. If you start with a very broad market, all of a sudden you're competing with everybody else who's got the same broad market on. The, so if you want to create a video app for kids to share two-minute videos, guess what? There's a lot of... <laughs> players yeah. <laughs> playing in that space right now. Yeah. Whereas if you want to do something very niched in a specific industry, I think that's I think that's a better place to start. Most of the entrepreneurs, and I know Brian, I'm sure lots as well, they don't want for new ideas. There's a thousand <laughs> ideas in their mind of people they could serve, markets they could go after, products they get. That's not the problem. Ideas are not the problem. The problem is the focus, the discipline to follow through on the idea. And so I would say to most entrepreneurial people, find one, really commit to dominating one and then over time you will not you will not be sh shy or lack for other potential ideas and i think that it goes back to something i talked about at the very beginning of our interview today which was the idea that to create a built to sell company one that can effectively be valuable to somebody else maybe an acquire one day there's sort of one there's sort of one essence of that or one sort of idea that it's at the core, which is that the business can thrive without you. And if that's the case, then it will be valuable to an acquirer. Maybe not be what you want for it, maybe a limited pool of acquirers, but it, there will be an acquirer out there if your business can thrive without you. And the opposite is also true. If your business cannot thrive without you, no matter what industry you're in, how sexy your business is, how many customers you have, how much profit or EBITDA you have, it is not going to be valuable in the eyes of an acquirer unless you are prepared to stay on. And so mm. 
Most earnouts are miserable, right? Yeah, earnouts are miserable. Vendor takebacks <laughs> are miserable. Equity rules. These are all forms of basically staying on. And no entrepreneur who values freedom, which I know your listeners do, Brian, wants to be beholden to some corporate company in an earnout or wants to roll equity. That's just an anathema to who they are as an individual, right? They want a clean break. They want freedom. And so in order to do that, you need a business that can thrive without you. Here's the catch. Most entrepreneurs are too wide in the suite and a variety of what they offer. Because mm-hmm. as I mentioned earlier, they're they're listening to customers and customers are asking them to sell more and more things. As a result, they get to be very wide in their service offering, which makes it hard to hire employees. Although mm. the entrepreneur may feel comfortable offering a wide variety of services, their employees are going to thrive on repetition, on, on being able to master a certain product or service. And so again, it comes down to the discipline of picking one thing, deciding you're to own that niche, then you can start hiring into that niche. And once you can hire, then you can create a business that can thrive without you because you're basically putting the key components in place that other people can do. But as long as you're doing too much stuff, offering too many things, it's very hard to hire. And almost always the people that you do hire will disappoint you. Yeah, especially if you're a rock star. I interviewed the founder of Priceline.com, Jeff Hoffman. If you guys want to go listen to that interview, I'll link it in the show description. But Jeff talked about, he said, stop spending all of your money on a bunch of good. He's take all that, scrap those people, hire one or two great, and they'll outperform 10 or 20 good every single day. And so that, that's been how I've been trying to grow my businesses. I'm like, okay, I want to just have one or two freaking rock stars. And two things to punctuate what you were talking about there. When we were talking about the recurring model, when it talked about having, you have too many offerings, you want to consolidate your offerings. I thought about Chick-fil-A. I thought about like chicken sandwiches, right? Because Chick-fil-A is damn good at selling chicken. That is their thing. They're not expanding into burritos. They're not expanding into burgers. They're not expanding into all this other stuff. They just want their chicken to fly off the freaking shelf. And because of that, their supply chain is way more sophisticated because they're only focusing on a couple of products and they only have to keep a couple of products good. And another thing is Jeff Bezos. When you're talking about Tam and Niche, he started with books. He wanted to be the best bookseller before he became Amazon. Do you want to go a little bit through that transition and kind of dissect that? Because that's exactly what you're talking about, right? Yeah, I'd even go back a step further to your point about employees. And one of the things that that I think acquirers look at and can be a measure of your efficiency in 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 leveraging employees is your revenue per employee. And unfortunately, a lot of us as entrepreneurs take a lot of pride in how many employees we have. So you rock up to an EO meeting and someone will say, how many people do you have? And you'll stick uh, out your chest and say, yeah. you, have, you have 16 employees. And that makes you the bigger kind of guy in the room than the one who has eight employees. It's just, unfortunately, it's like revenue. It's, we have these shorthand ways of measuring each other as entrepreneurs. And the more employees, therefore, the more successful, more important the person is in the room. And yet nothing could be further from the truth, in my opinion, that really the ultimate measure of one of the ultimate measures of the value of a company is your ability to convert revenue per employee. So if you look at a company like like a typical crappy, undifferentiated service business might have 80 grand revenue per employee. A reasonably well differentiated service business with a unique offering might get 200 grand 
revenue per employee. A good technology company with some could get 700 grand revenue per employee. Goldman Sachs, last time I looked at it, I think they had $2 million of revenue per employee. Microsoft, it's around a million too. These are companies that are doing a much better job converting headcount into revenue and profitability. And so I would just encourage, and by the way, acquirers know this, sophisticated acquirers know this. And so they're looking not at your sheer headcount and patting you on the back going, wait, wait boy, you got to 50 employees. That's not only, <laughs> they want to know how efficient is your model, right? Like how much revenue are you generating? I think it was WhatsApp. I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but when it was acquired by Zuckerberg at Meta and Facebook, I want to say... It was ridiculous. Yeah. They had a like, yeah. low headcount, right? Yeah. Their headcount was, I think, 56. I wrote about them in The Automatic Customer. I should remember off the top of my head. The headcount was well below 100 employees. And they sold for, I want to say, $18 billion or $24 billion. Think about that on a value per employee. It's like astronomical, right? So you don't have to have a lot of, comp of employees to have a valuable company. And, uh, and niching down is one of the ways to do that. As it relates to Bezos and, and the example of Chick-fil-A, there's another famous example from Southwest Airlines where they just fly the 737s, although they started to experiment with different equipment. But for a long time, they were just... Do we want to use them as a business yeah. case study no, right now? No, not right now. <laughs> But there's another, it's another famous example that's got around. And usually it's supply chain that, yeah. that people talk about, right? So chicken, you don't have to buy burgers, you don't have to buy sausage. All you do buy is chicken. So supply chain is usually the point. I typically look at it in a different way and say, building a business that can thrive without you is about getting employees to do the work. And so if all you do is sell chicken and you've got a chicken sandwich, deep fried chicken sandwich, fries, and Coke or Sprite, let's just say, as an example. It's been a while since I've been at Chick-fil-A, so forgive me if I don't know the whole menu. It's okay. Like, it's okay, Toronto. Mr. Toronto, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. That's a menu that the cook can master, the person at the front can master, the guys running the drive-thru can master. Like That's a menu they can master. But you all of a sudden throw in cheeseburgers and waffle cones. And as to your point, burritos, not only does the supply chain get screwed up, but it exponentially expands the complexity of the business for the people you want and need to do it without you. And so it takes three times longer to train the drive-through guy and five times longer to train the cook. And all of a sudden you're in the weeds. And again, to make a valuable business, you have to be able to get it so that it can run without you. And one of the secrets is less, not more. Selling less stuff, not more stuff. So let's talk about that transition. First off, that's the first time that I've ever really heard that KPI, revenue per employee. So that was really interesting that you said that. You hear about like LTV thrown out all the time, lifetime value of customers, but you never really hear about revenue per employee. So that was a really interesting point that you made. I want to talk about the transition from that entrepreneur that's either a solopreneur looking to go from an I do to a we do, or we're talking about that maybe that entrepreneur that already has a business, maybe they have a real estate business, they have a service-based business, and they've got a team, but they're still very much in the weeds. And there's another book, Cash Flow Quadrants, where they talk about like the different section sections of the cash flow quadrant. And you've got like business owner, investor, and an employee and self-employed. We do not want to be employee or self-employed. We want to be business owner and investor. So can you give us some, some color to transition on that and how we can talk to that person right now that's in their business and help them as smoothly as possible transition into building a business that can operate without them? Yeah. <laughs> some people yeah. haven't even thought about this before, but now that they're hearing that it's possible, they're like, preach to me, brother John. 
Preach. <laughs> to me, Brother John. Let me get in my pulpit. And uh, no, yeah. TBR <laughs> is what you're looking for. What you want to identify is a product or service that meets three, three criteria. We call it TBR. It stands for Teachable, Valuable, Repeatable. A teachable service, and most startup businesses and most new businesses, certainly the ones that I've seen, are either service businesses or services the way they're differentiated. So what you want to think about is measuring your service on three dimensions, TBR, teachable, valuable, repeatable. Teachable is to what degree you can teach that service to an employee, or is it dependent on you? Valuable is the best way to think about valuable is, is the opposite of valuable is commoditized. So valuable services and products are ones that are highly differentiated, that you are the only game in town. You're the one person that is really set up to deliver that. And then the third repeatable gets back to recurring revenue, which means that how, how much recurring revenue can you create with that service? How often do customers have to repurchase that service? Is it a one-off service like a wedding planner where you only have to hopefully ever need that once? Or is it something... <laughs> Unless you're in Vegas. Yeah, really. Or is it a service that recurs? Like to go back to my HVAC company that has to go in and replace the air filters in homes, that's something that happens every 90 days. And so that's a recurring, that would score high on recurring. So what I suggest people do is grab a white paper, grab an Evernote, grab a sheet of paper and just list all the services that they provide today. Or if you're still on the sidelines and you haven't even started your business yet, do the same. List out all the things that you're thinking of doing and score them on teachable, valuable, repeatable. And what I have found is that the products or services that score the highest are the ones that have the best potential to, to create a sellable company around. Now, one of the things that you might find, Brian, or your listeners might find when they do that is that the things that are most teachable are also the least valuable in the eyes of customers. So things that are most teachable are oftentimes the commoditized services, right? Whereas the things that are most valuable in the eyes of the customer, the things that you're really uniquely positioned to offer that you do better than anybody else are the least teachable. And that is a very common tension that exists with this TVR model. And here's the mistake most people make when that happens. They're like, man, my teachable stuff's least valuable. My valuable stuff's not very teachable. I'm going to try to figure out how to make my valuable stuff more teachable. And that almost always fails because mm. you're trying to boil the ocean. You're trying to create your unique secret sauce, your amazing alchemy that's inside your head and graft it into your employees. And it takes years and just you're almost always disappointed in the outcome of that. And so what I would encourage listeners to do is exactly the opposite. Focus on what is teachable and make it more valuable in the eyes of the customer through differentiation, through adding a marketing layer on it. So it appears that you're the only game in town. So Built to Sell, the book, there's a story in there about a guy who has a marketing agency. He decides mm -hmm. to focus on logos because he's got a bit of a formula for creating these logos. And instead of just saying, I'm a generic marketing agency, defining himself that way, and we create logos, he productized his service, gave it a label, a wrapper to make it look different. He called it the five-step logo design process. Guess mm -hmm. what? When you label and productize your service, 
immediately you're the only game in town because you're the one who owns that product or service. In this case, in Alex Stapleton's case in the book, it was the five-step logo design service. Then you get to determine the price of it. You get to determine how it's delivered. And you've got marketing differentiation because you're the only game in town. One of the mistakes that a lot of new entrepreneurs make is they start to define themselves in their industry. So they'll say, I'm a painter. I'm a roofer. I'm a dentist. And all of a sudden, they've immediately commoditized themselves. Because if you say, I'm a dentist, I can go around and compare you to five other dentists and figure out what you cost to install a, fill a filling. Whereas if you have the, the five-step cleaning, ha happy mouth... <laughs> process. That's <laughs> the I'm, patented I'm not, I'm not happy mouth process. But you know what I mean? If you've got your differentiated way that you deliver dental care that only you offer, then all of a sudden you've set yourself out from the other you know, dentists. You can also teach other people to deliver the process if it's a teachable process. Whereas again, the biggest mistake we see people make is they try to figure out what's valuable and then they go about trying to make it teachable. And that's almost always a failure. Start with what's teachable and differentiate it with the service layer. I, I love that. So in the book that you were talking about, so built to sell, basically, guys, it's like a parable. So John's kind of follow, you're following the story of this guy that's running this marketing agency. And like he said, like he's got all these different products and services that's going really nowhere. And then he's reliant on a couple of big customers that are dicking him around. And then he niches down and he creates this five-step formula for creating the logo, right? And so... This formula didn't exist like out of thin air. Like he didn't have this proprietary formula. What he did in the book was he documented what he was already doing and he packaged it into that proprietary formula, right? So he was like, That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it was all about positioning and packaging that thing. And how I've seen that in my business, and John, I'll let you dissect this for a bit because I think this is a perfect case study that I'm implementing live in color is I started my thing. I was like, okay, I'm going to help W2 employees transition into entrepreneurship. And that was the original course. And then I transitioned that into a mastermind because I wanted to do the recurring model. And I also noticed immediately that people that were joining my course were getting more value out of the Facebook group and the community. And they were already mm. doing deals together organically. I said, whoa, okay, sticky air, sticky air. I read Built to Sell. I was like, I'm not going to let John down. I'm going to interview him one day. <laughs> we got to do better. Got to be better. So I made it an annual recurring model. But here's the here's what's crazy, John. And I think I really want to punctuate what you said here because this is a perfect case study. So what I did was then I had a 12-week kind of proprietary framework that I was saying that was the course originally that I was sending to people as the beginning of the mastermind. I said, hey, here's a 12-week thing with an attached mastermind. Then I started sending material to prospective people that were applying that didn't involve that 12-week proprietary thing. And it was just the mastermind. I said, here's the mastermind. Here's what it is. The response rate dropped without that 12-week proprietary thing that we're still doing in the mastermind. I just wasn't telling them about it and labeling it as proprietary. Can we hit about this a little bit more, man? Because I think that's a that's, perfect case yeah. study. 
What a great case study. And yeah, it speaks to masterminds are a dime a dozen, right? Everybody's exactly. got a mastermind. But if you've got a proprietary formula in particular, my understanding is your mastermind focuses on a specific niche of to businesses, a specific industry, and you've got a, a specific methodology, all of a sudden you're just differentiating yourself from every Tom, Dick, and Harry who has a business owner peer group. Now you've got something proprietary. And, and also it, it elevates the perceived value, right? Like you're getting yes. a thing that even if I don't love the mastermind or I don't connect with my fellow peers or whatever in the group, at least I'm walking away with the 12 step course. So I, yeah. I think that's, I think it's a great case study. I'm glad you're now like merchandising it as part of the offering. Yeah. And I didn't think about that until the book, until you literally said like the five step framework. And I was just it's like, well, yeah. yeah, I was like, we're already doing this. This is how we're doing it. Okay. How do I make this into a package thing? Okay. So week one, week two, week three, because people love being told what to do and being told quantifiably what they're going to get. Yeah. One hack there, because a lot of people are unconsciously competent, right? Like they have their way of doing their thing that if they've been doing it a long time, they've really struggled to teach it to other people. You know, I they, struggle with that. Yeah, some of the most famous sports coaches are not necessarily the best players in their sport that are just retired, right? Because there's mm. a there's a different skill set to teaching that is somewhat different than actually doing. And so here again, I recommend that if you can hire a journalist or a student journalist or someone who can interview you about your unique approach to serving customers. Give them the marching order that you really want to codify and describe to a layperson your unique way of serving people. And again, it's oftentimes it's in our head. It's so like second nature that we don't even think about it. But actually, when you get a layperson to break it down, in particular a journalist who knows nothing about your business, and you're like going through and having them interview you, they'll often be able to tease out what it is that you do unconsciously into a set of steps. And that can become the raw material for your 12-step process or your five-step process or whatever. But oftentimes, it requires a third person or an outsider to help you because for most of us, it's second nature that what we do, it's hard to codify it in, and teach it. Can we talk, can we hit a little bit more about building this skill set? Because people listening, what John's talking about is four levels of competence. You have unconscious incompetence. Then you go to conscious incompetence where you're saying, where well, first is I suck and I don't know it. Then you're like, okay, I suck and I know it. And then you're like, okay, now I'm getting good. And then eventually, and then you go to conscious competence where you're like, okay, now I'm getting better. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And I'm aware of it because I'm putting in the effort. And then you go to unconscious competence to where you're so good at something that it becomes very simple and you don't understand why anybody else doesn't realize this anymore. So I feel like this is a problem that we can really pinpoint right here because a lot of entrepreneurs, why do they start their company, John? They start their company because they were working for somebody else and they said, damn it, I can do this so much better than this asshat that's running this company. I'm going to go out on my own. I'm going to do this. But what do they yeah. lack? And I'm pot calling the kettle black right here. Like I run into this problem too because they possess the skill set to do it. But then when they start hiring, they do not possess the skill set of articulation, systems and process creation and all of this stuff that's necessary to creating a system that thrives without them. So can we talk a little bit more about the transition from that person with the unconscious competence into 
doing that where they, you said, hire a journalist even to come in and like document what they're doing? Is it just an external thing that we have to do or is there anything internally we can do as well? Yeah, externally can accelerate the process for sure. Internally, again, I would go back to TBR and scoring services on that three-part formula. I think that's another piece. I think talking to your customers and ask them, like, what is it that you value in what we do and trying to get them to articulate in less, not superficial terms. I love your service. What is it about your, our service that you find so attractive or that you like so much? Trying to get down to, because again, think about it. You've got to codify this, create a methodology other people can follow. So it's not good enough to say, oh, we love your service. Okay. What is it about our service? We love the fact that as a dental practice, let us get appointments from eight to nine in the morning because that means I don't have to miss a day of work to get my de- my my teeth cleaned. Okay, mm. I can do something with that, right? The eight to nine window is reserved specifically for my subscribers who give me a recurring payment. So that premium time slot is available to my subscribers, right? That insight wouldn't have come if you didn't probe deeper than I love your service or you're great. Pra-. Like you get to the the nub of, of what it is they like about your service. So talk to your customers as well. You can also, I just did an interview for Built to Sell Radio where I interviewed a guy who who is starting a company in the moving industry. The way he's identifying the service model and really articulating what makes his moving different than Mayflower and all the thousands of other moving companies is he's going on to Yelp and he's reading one-star reviews. And he's trying to understand like, what are the pain points in my industry, right? So if you don't, if you're just starting out, you're in a corporate world and you're thinking about starting a job or starting a business, you can go to the Yelp reviews and just read firsthand what frustrates people about the incumbents, about your ultimate competitors one day. So that's another kind of hack. Yeah. I just interviewed a couple of weeks ago. I just interviewed the founder of Big Ass Fans, ironically, who sold his company for 500 million. And it was a very tongue in cheek. Like he basically made half a billion dollars off of sarcasm. But he, I mean, he identified he's, his whole shtick was he start with a problem, build a solution, start with a problem, build a solution. And I think over and over again, we see that, but people aren't starting with the solution that the actually solves the problem. They're start, starting with the solution that they think is the solution to the problem. And then they just do all of this work and they, make this entire business around the solution that the market doesn't even necessarily want and they don't even have that product market fit yet. Can you give some advice maybe about finding product market fit and making sure that you're providing the correct solution before you get into the weeds here? Because I feel like that's a lot how a lot of businesses fail. Yeah, no, for sure. Something we've already talked about, which is the idea of niching down is going to be critical, yeah. way below what you would normally do. In, one of the ways that a lot of businesses, in, at least in a business-to-business context, niche down will be by industry. And the temptation is to stay at a two-digit NAICS code, so professional services versus manufacturing companies. I don't think you'll see a lot of homogeneous needs or pain points until you get to a six-digit NAICS code, which means sure. like tax attorney versus like bike shop owner, like that degree of specificity. So you're going to want to niche down. I love your former guest's comments around 
find a problem and then design a solution. I think you're right. M many of us as entrepreneurs do the opposite. We've come up with a solution and then we look for the problem that problem. Solved. that's not going to be helpful. So I think, again, it, it comes down to identifying a very unique subsegment. So in a business to business context, that's oftentimes industry. In a business to consumer context, it's stuff like demographics, age, gen income, it can also be life stage. So there's sure. a lot of research that's done around next logical product marketing or NLP marketing, where you have a life event and it makes you very likely to buy another pr product. For example, classic would be you have a child and all of a sudden you are astronomically more likely to buy life insurance or yeah. you buy a house and all of a sudden you're likely to buy a second car because you move from downtown to the suburbs and your spouse needs to drive to work. And there's all these sort of triggering events. So if you're thinking about like, how do you find a problem? My advice would be niche down. And the way to do that is either in a business context, oftentimes it's industry. In a consumer context, it's oftentimes either demographics or life, life stage. Perfect. Are you good to go for another 10 to the top of the hour, John? Yeah, sure. Okay, perfect. One more point to punctuate that. And then I want to get into a mock life cycle of an exit for people that are listening that maybe have a company that is printing out five, $10 million of revenue. And they do have a pretty attractive EBITDA, but they're not familiar with what the ex exit process actually looks like. But first, one last point on this and we'll punctuate it is so in my community, what I do is I'm constantly asking for feedback because I do the MVP model where I'm minimum viable product. I put it out there and I see how they react. I see how they want to pivot. And then I add, and then I change with feedback. And one of the questions I ask is I was like, I want to figure out what people hate the most. I like knowing what they love the most, but I also want to know what they hate the most. And so I normally will ask, if you could change one thing about my service, like what would you change? And I ask that, is there a better way of asking that to get that direct feedback? Or is that pretty good? That's a Yeah, if there's, yeah. If you've got a like really good community and they don't want to offend you, they might be less inclined to answer that. If you couched it as if there was one thing that could make our service even better, you might be more inclined to get a, an answer because they're not going to be feeling like they're going to offend you by saying, because by, yeah, by, by the very nature of the question, yeah. they're already acknowledging that they like what you do. <laughs> You're providing a great service. But if you add a layer of, but if there was one thing that we could even, we could go from a 10 to 11 or make it even better, they might be like, you know, I don't come think about it. You could do X. And I think you might get a more, Whereas if you're so argumentative or dogmatic about the question, like, what do you hate about it? They might be like, nothing really. I like yeah. it. That's why I'm a customer. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So that might be a uh, yeah. I come at it from a place of love because like normally they'll be like celebrating like it's, and it's funny like they'll be celebrating a win or something. I'd be like, oh my god, that's so awesome. I'm like, but tell me, if, like, what could be better? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, yeah. what? <laughs> so I'm trying to think yeah. about how to change that so I can improve the uh, community even more because it's all customer led. Um, because I want to focus on value for them. Okay. In closing, walk us through an exit situation. So I've got a company. Right. Is, say you have a company, maybe you'd be better at painting an example, or you can use an example of maybe one of your case studies to where it's like you have a company that's profitable, the EBITDA is favorable, and now you're starting to get systems in place. You've And now it's time where you're like, oh, I've never really thought about selling, but I think this could be sellable. When, walk us through a mock process here. We can hit on like really quickly, like right time to sell, tricks that you've seen people pulling on people, et cetera. I'll just let you have the floor on this one. Very ignorant to this. 
Yeah. I interview different entrepreneurs every week on Built Cell Radio. So I, this is the stuff we talk about is what was your process for selling your company? So I think there is a bit of a f- new format. Yeah, there are definitely nuances, but there's also a, a tried and true road to go down. Here's what I would tell you not to do, which is to get suckered into a proprietary deal. Here's the thing. The two most common thing reasons that entrepreneurs sell their company are number one, they have some sort of health event, so a heart attack or some, something happens to them. Or two, they get approached by an acquirer. Now, when you get approached by a choir, it will likely be a very favorable approach. They'll shower you with compliments, tell you how wonderful you are. They'll get you to sign an NDA and ultimately an LOI, letter of intent, which you give up the rights to negotiate with anybody else. And when you do that, the balance of power in the negotiation swings heavily from you to them. And in that case, they've got you under LOI. You, you can't negotiate with anybody else. And oftentimes the value erodes, they retrade. Oftentimes the deal doesn't go anywhere because there's no competitive tension in the deal. And so that's called a proprietary deal. And it's one of the biggest mistakes I think entrepreneurs make is they get suckered into or their ego is basically their enemy in the sense that they get kind of lured into this deal. What you want to do is the opposite. What you want to do is create a structured process for selling your company. And a structured process really is designed to get multiple bidders to start feeding on your opportunity simultaneously. Like imagine there's a carcass on the road and there's an entire fleet of ravens that are coming in to pick over your company at the same time. You want that experience of having lots of different people vying for or bidding for your business simultaneously. And the way you do that is you start with a long list of prospective acquirers. So usually some like 100 to 200 prospective acquirers. Wow. Okay. You're going to vet that list using the 5 to 20 rule. And the 5 to 20 rule just simply says that the most natural acquirer for your business is a company 5 to 20, si- 20 times the size of it today. So if you're doing $5 million in revenue, as an example, the minimum size of company you should really have on that list is $25 million. So 5 to 20 would be the kind of sweet spot. So you want to take a couple hundred names, run it through the 5 to 20 filter and come up with a list of a smaller list. Maybe it's 80, 90, 100 names. And you're going to send them an anonymous teaser, effectively. It's a one-page document which disguises the name of your company and some kind of obviously identifying attributes of your company. But it gives the acquirer enough to know whether they want to sign an, L- an NDA, non-disclosure agreement. What does that look like? What would that email the teaser? look like? Yeah. And are you sending like that? One- you, so you're sending that to them? To a prospective buyer. Yeah. Got it. It's like a one pager. It says, Hey, there's an HVAC company based in the Northeast. They've got 3 million in revenue. They've got 400 grand in profit and they're growing 20%. The management team's in place. They've got a chief marketing officer. They've got three suppliers that make up 80% of their supply. So the kind of key metrics of your business in one page. Would a broker send this out on your behalf? Would you hire a preemptive? Yeah. So you get this this company saying that they want to buy you. It's BS. They're trying to just lock you down before a competitive situation occurs. And then you go to a broker and you say, hey, I've got this offer. Let's shop this out. And then they would do this on your behalf, correct? Yeah. Before you get the offer, I would hire the advisor, the M&A professional. So even before you... like. I use the example of getting an offer and having to react to it as something you don't want to do. What I would encourage listeners to do is the opposite, which is to be on your front foot. Instead of waiting till you get an offer, is deciding when's the right time for you to sell based on your life situation and what you want to do next. 
and proactively hire an advisor. So if it's a smaller company, less than a million or two in revenue, that's probably going to be a business broker. If it's a larger company, it's called an M&A professional, mergers and acquisition professional. And the M&A professional is going to run through the process I'm describing. So this is not a DIY. Dan Sullivan strategic. Who not ho, who not how. Yeah. And I'm describing the how of selling your company, but really you want a who. You want somebody to run this process for you. So you want to go out of your way to really find someone who's going to understand how to sell a business effectively and going to do this for you. But the process is fairly simple. So it's a one-page teaser that your advisor is going to send out to a list of business owners. They're going to then get a group of those to be interested and those interested ones are going to get what's called a SIM or a confidential information memorandum, which is like a lot more information about your company. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to get offers, hopefully, and then offers will go to an LOI and then LOI to closing. That's the and normally the of and normally the length of this process to go through due diligence and all that. It's normally like a year to a year and a half. No, I think from the day you hire your M and A professional, I think to the offer stage is probably five to six months, and you're going to sign an LOI letter of intent, which includes a due diligence period. That's usually 60 mm-hmm. days. So I think it's fair to say from the day you sign your M&A professional to the day the check clears your bank account, it's probably eight months. It could be longer. It could be shorter, but I would budget eight months. Okay. Perfect. Are you locked down right now? Do you need a jet? Go or do you got five? I'm fine. Okay. Fine. All right. Now I get to be selfish. Heck yeah. I'll only be selfish for about five minutes. We've earned it now. So right now, what I'm doing is I've got this podcast. This podcast got about 50,000 monthly downloads right now, and it grows at about 20 to 30% monthly. So it's growing outstanding. You're going to be bigger than Joe Rogan in a year. (laughs) Yeah. like I've had that grow at that rate for... 15 consecutive months now. So that's my benchmark because I want to keep going. So that's my primary focus. So the goal is million downloads a month, 2024. So that's what we're, that's where we're going. And then at that point, we could have advertising. You run a podcast built to sell, which all you guys that are listening, you should check out. John's podcast is phenomenal. So I'm trying to package my business to where I can include, it would probably be to a strategic buyer. It wouldn't be to private equity. I wouldn't imagine It'd be probably like, Maybe to the HubSpot or someone, but I'm trying to think of how to package this mastermind, all of the social media, all the brand, all the podcast, all the listenership, all the newsletter together into one sellable thing. I'm trying to think about how to best go about that from the beginning so that when we look up, pick our heads up a year or two from now, and we've got a substantial amount of subscribers, audience, and revenue, that would be most advent, most attractive to a buyer. So there's probably a lot there to dissect. I'm just trying to think about the best way to navigate that ship to do it the mm. right way, if that makes sense. Or I can clarify any points you you want. Yeah, no, it, it makes total sense. I think there's sort of three types of buyers out there, and it might be a good idea to start with the end in mind. So the three types are... Yeah, so an individual investor would be like, I love what Brian's doing. I want to live in Austin. I love his setup. I want to buy his business and just be like Brian. So that's an individual investor, right? They typically have the least amount of money and they're usually you get paid over time, but they can be a a viable way to sell your business. The second group is private equity. And so private equity group is in a kind of buy low, sell high game, right? So they're not necessarily particularly in love with podcasting or masterminds or 
most likely what it is that you do, but they see an opportunity. They see an opportunity to buy your business for X and sell it for 5X or 3X down the road. And again, you might be attractive to the second group if you're business is bankable. And a bankable business means essentially that you can borrow money without a personal guarantee. That's yep. my definition of bankable. It just means that a bank looks at the recurring nature of your revenue and it's sustained enough and it's consistent enough that they will lend money. In which case, the private equity company can borrow money to buy your business and therefore it's an attractive business asset for them to own. The third group is the strategic, and you mentioned the HubSpot. And of course, there. Because I saw you just had Sam. Important. I saw you just had Sam Parr on there, and he just sold like the hustle. Yeah, Sam Parr. And these, yeah, new, and these yeah. newsletter subscription businesses. That's how I'm seeing things. I'm like, okay, cool. So I need to have someone paying me like monthly and monthly value. So that's how I'm like viewing everything. Yeah. So I interviewed Sam Parr on Built Star Radio, and he talked about. HubSpot's acquisition of The Hustle, his startup newsletter and media company. It's a, it was very similar. A couple of months ago, I interviewed Chan, Channing Allen, who sold Indie Hackers, which is a website for startup entrepreneurs to Stripe. Oh, and nice. I'll listen to that. And understanding, yeah, understanding the reason both of those acquisitions came about was software companies are spending more and more money to acquire customers. So HubSpot spends tens of thousands of dollars to win one customer. Now, when they win a customer, the customer's sticky and they tend to stay a long time and spend a lot of money. So it's worth it to them, but their cost per account acquired is very high. And so they bought the hustle because they're like, hey, if we can buy this traffic that Sam is generating, hundreds of thousands of page views a month, millions of page views a month, we can convert a tiny percentage of it for free and that will lower our customer acquisition costs. Same thing at Stripe. They looked at indie hackers and said, man, if we could just pick up 5% of this audience, it's like free money for us relative to what we're spending to win customers. One of the things that you might be attractive to would be a strategic acquire like a software group, like an Intuit, like a, those types of companies that want an efficient way to acquire customers. So if you think about that by extension, what's gonna be valuable to your business is your audience, your traffic, your ability to generate page views, downloads on the podcast, social impressions, and so forth. That's what's going to be valuable, less your recurring revenue. Got recurring it. revenue is, if you're looking to sell to a private equity group, the recurring revenue is what makes your business bankable. And the more you have recurring revenue and the more profitable your business is, the more bankable it will be, the more you'll be attractive to private equity groups. The fact that, so depending on how you see yourself exiting is where I would focus my energy. Again, if it's, I want to sell to a private equity group, you're going to want lots of recurring revenue and lots of profitability. If I want to sell to a strategic like HubSpot, I'm going to want the maximum size audience I can possibly garner. They just want your audience. You could use the mastermind to build the audience, which is total. That's what Jason Fried did at Basecamp. He was like, hey, man, like we're doing websites. What I really want to sell is project management software. But in order to fund that, I don't want to go raise a bunch of outside investment. So we're just Boot going to create yeah. custom websites, use the profit, and build Basecamp. So you can use the profit from the mastermind to build your audience, but the audience, the mastermind stuff is not going to be attractive to a strategic acquire, in my view. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's perfect. That's perfect feedback because that's exactly what I'm thinking. And I don't want to sell any of this stuff ever, but I'm just trying to, I've put my stuff through this frame of reference. 
so that because as a new entrepreneur, like my goal this year is to have over 500 members in Action Academy, which I will, which will be over a million dollars ARR. So that's fun. And the podcast, the through affiliates prints out 120,000 last year, just through affiliates. And then once I throw a CPM on there, then that'll be another 400,000. Like now we're starting to have like fun numbers, but I'm like, okay, how do I think about this? Begin with the end of mind. What does the end look like? So that provided a lot of clarity towards that. So but to I take, appreciate that. To take, yeah, my pleasure. But to take the conversation full circle to something we talked about in the very beginning of the conversation, it can't rely on Brian. Exactly. And that's where yeah. building a media business is tricky because right now, my guess is your listeners and your audience, at least to some extent, are loyal to you and not necessarily to Action Academy. What's up, guys? <laughs> What's that? So what's up, guys? They're still so listening what? to this point. It's proof of concept, right? <laughs> that's totally normal. That's totally normal and not like that's not to be that's to be celebrated in, in a way. It's because what sure, you sure. do. And at some point, you're going to need to get that relationship equity you have with your audience to accrue to something or somebody else. Perfect. And that's a tricky you know, indie hackers, the Channing guys. It wasn't Alan moderating the podcast. It was indie hackers that people were loyal to. Similarly at the hustle, while Sam had a pretty big role, he hired some writers fairly early on that became the kind of stars of the show. He had a social following, but his two writers had four and 700,000 Twitter followers, respectively. So they were building their own sort of following. So I would just encourage you to start to think about that migration path. Perfect. Where can people find you, John? And if somebody is in the process of exiting, is, are there any consult- consultation services you offer, courses, anything that you do with your company? I think just go to builttosell.com. You can grab a free book. You can grab Built to Sell or The Automatic Customer, or you can grab a copy of The Automatic, the Art of Selling Your Business. And if, if you're in the process of thinking about selling, you can grab The Art of Selling Your Business. Again, it's free. We just ask you to pay shipping and handling. It's just at builttosell.com. Perfect. John, I appreciate you, my friend. This has been fantastic. Oh my God. This is why you create a podcast, people, right here. <laughs> I love it, man. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brian. It was fun. All right, this has been Brian and John with the Action Academy Podcast, signing off. Hey, real quick, if you're still listening to today's episode, I'm assuming you got value from it, so I need your help specifically. My two-year vision with this show is to help over 1 million people do what they want, when they want, with who they want, and I can only do that with your help. There are two main ways that a podcast grows. One is through ratings and reviews, and the other is word of mouth. If you could please leave me a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, as well as send this to one or two friends that you think would get value from it, we can reach the people that we're looking to reach. Thanks in advance. Talk tomorrow.